everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Brian Hoffer from Secure Justice. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing good, David. Appreciate you having me on. So tell us, what is Secure Justice? What do you guys do? Uh, personally, it was, it was my, uh, uh, attempt at having one job, uh, still trying to figure out how to wear one hat, but, um, what we are is a C3. We're located in Oakland, primarily working in California, but, uh, we are materially involved in, in, in many projects, uh, with municipalities and community groups across the country. Um, I was, uh, a, a truly independent volunteer, unfunded activist for about six years, just kind of working around my day job for a while on a lot of privacy and surveillance related matters. And uh, eventually just the success we were having, the demands for, for more help uh, led to uh, uh, me and, and a group of friends that I've been working with in the Bay Area for, for quite a while to form Secure Justice. And, and we say our mission statement is that we advocate against the state abusing its power. Uh, and we also target the corporations that help facilitate those human rights abuses. And so although we kind of all primarily were working on uh, surveillance and, and privacy invasive, uh, you know, policing practice, law enforcement um, practices, uh, we've started to, to branch out a bit more into uh, criminal justice reform as well. Partly just some of our board members uh, you know, that have gone through the system and formerly incarcerated, just looking at barriers to entry. Uh, and that's really when we started, you know, paying attention to, to folks like you, uh, awareness you were raising about unlawful arrests, um, prosecutor misconduct, um, you know, Jeffrey and Bill and a number of other folks, you know, uh, you know, we began having discussions with them about maybe how we can, you know, work on legislation here in California together. Um, and, and so we're broadening our, our scope, uh, in that regard a little bit, but you know, whether it's, you know, I kind of see surveillance as like sort of the slower, longer harm. Whereas of course, you know, like unlawful use of force, there's a, an immediate threat to your life, uh, but but they're both the same uh, at, at a base level, the, the state, the state agents are abusing their power. And, uh, you know, that's what we try to, to be a guardrail against. How did you get into this space in the first place? Pure accident. Um, I still don't understand my life, uh, how it's turned out. Um, I had been living in Oakland for about 15 years. 
um, had never once even thought about walking into City Hall. I had never been inside City Hall, not even by accident, not for a tour. Uh, I didn't know who was on the city council, uh, had never done any advocacy work. Like, you know, I, I, I grew up in a politically minded family. You know, we paid attention. I read the news, you know, newspaper every day, watch, watch news, I pay attention, but I, I never got off the couch. Um, and, and after about 15 years uh, being in Oakland, uh, this project uh, that nobody knew existed called the Domain Awareness Center uh, showed up on a city council agenda. Um, that was in June of 2013, and it had the wonderfully unfortunate timing of being two weeks behind some guy named Edward Snowden hitting the front pages. So as, as Mr. Snowden is revealing all the, you know, federal surveillance level practices, um, and, and keep in mind, so this is 2013, you know, we had Occupy Oakland in 2012, which, you know, was big and important, but also ended pretty badly. There was just a lot of, of energy and anxiety in Oakland at that time when this hit. And so as Snowden was kind of pulling back the, the curtain to reveal what was happening at the federal level, uh, the, the administration tried to sneak in under the radar of this domain awareness center, which today most people would call a real-time crime center. Uh, it would uh, commingle uh, inputs from surveillance tech like license plate readers and shot spotter and cameras. They were going to specifically put cameras in public housing and public schools. Uh, even back in 2013, they were talking about facial recognition, even though it was nowhere near ready, you know, for prime time. And they were going to commingle databases with, you know, the feds. And, and so, of course, we've also got sanctuary and immigration concerns. Uh, the FBI, which, you know, has, has uh, especially since, you know, 9-11, uh, has, you know, targeted Muslims here in the Bay Area. So there's just all this energy um, uh, in, in the air. We had no privacy policies in Oakland for any technology at all. It was a complete wild west. They didn't think it was a big deal. They didn't think we needed a, a use policy for this massive big project. And um, no media coverage. It slides through the first phase of the contract goes through. Um, you know, there was a sort of very unorganized half-hearted attempt. And I say half-hearted because there was only a few people that even were aware of this thing. They just didn't have, you know, enough help. Uh, trying to slow it down, and, and that didn't work. And then finally, um, I had quit a litigation firm at the end of that year, and our local zine, uh, the East Bay Express, did a cover story. Uh, they, had, they had researched thousands of pages of public documents uh, that they got under the Public Record Act and did this big expose. And I read that in the middle of the early part of January. I was sitting on my coffee table, and no one in my social circle had known about it. There was no uh, mainstream media coverage. You know, I've done my undergrad and grad school here in Oakland and just, you know, I know a lot of people and no one knew this thing existed. Uh, there'd been no public vetting, no scrutiny at all. And uh, I finally got motivated. I'm like, you know, what? I, I think, you know, partly <laughs> I had time on my hands. I wasn't doing anything. So I'm like, Let, let's go show up and see what could happen. And um, there was a group of folks that were trying to rally to, uh, to oppose it, but they just, you know, they had no strategy. They hadn't talked talk to any of the elected officials. You know, they didn't know what they were doing and, and neither did I. I mean, I had no training, uh, no experience, 
but I just showed up and, you know, put on the suit and tie and, and walked inside to go tell the city council members, you know, we're going to sue you over this and, and you need to slow down and stop it. And the legal threat worked enough to stall. We stalled a couple of votes and that's what allowed us to build just a giant, massive coalition. And every time we stalled a vote, like it just, our coalition got bigger and bigger and we finally started getting press coverage. And finally on uh, March 4th, 2014, uh, I was awake for 26 hours straight. I started off at like a 5 a.m. radio debate with one of the council members. I did media all day long. It was a 5.30 city council meeting. Um, it, it The vote didn't happen until like 1.30 in the morning. Uh, we had the, the council chambers were filled, standing room only. I mean, they brought in like a hundred police officers to ring the council chambers and just uh, intimidate us. Like, I mean, it, it was honestly like uh, one of the most exciting, most amazing days of my life, just the energy. And um, by uh, a single vote, um, and this is the only close vote I've ever had in my career at any level. Uh, it was a five, four vote. Um, the project technically survived in a very uh, skeletal manner, um, but all the alarming red flag parts have been uh, stricken from the project. And the, the, the real important thing that came out was that we got an ad hoc privacy commission and uh, regular citizens, uh, one of which was me, were tasked with creating privacy policies for the city of Oakland. And after only like maybe our second meeting, we realized this was gonna be a permanent need. Like there's always gonna be new and emerging technologies, the city and, and just pretty much every municipality I've ever worked with. Like they don't have the subject matter expertise. They don't have the bandwidth to deal with this stuff. They just, you know, believe whatever the police tell them or whatever any staffer tells them and just rubber stamp this. And uh, they don't realize the, the harm and the data security issues at risk. Uh, so we were able to successfully convince the city council to make it a permanent body. Uh, it became the first uh, municipal oversight body in the country uh, that had oversight of surveillance technology in the city of Oakland. And I was appointed to that body. I've been the chair the whole time. And you know, that, that kind of helped me obviously create, you know, raise my own profile. And that's when we eventually led to forming secure justice and basically just scaling up, trying to take that and replicate it. Uh, we recently uh, consulted with uh, groups down in San Diego. We helped them get a Oakland model privacy commission and surveillance vetting framework. And, you know, just kind of doing that all over now and, and branching out in the criminal justice a bit more. So how did you go from there to more of the criminal justice realm? It, it's it's a couple uh, for a couple reasons. Um, one, as I alluded to earlier, you know, sort of that difference between like the sort of long, slow harm from surveillance, right? We often don't know we've been harmed until 30, 40 years after the fact, you know, COINTELPRO infiltrating the Panthers, so on and so forth. You don't find out so much later. That doesn't mean the harm wasn't done. It was. You just didn't discover, you know, that your group got split apart and your coalition died because the FBI was infiltrating you. Um, the the just the unbelievable amount of officer involved fatalities, um, our rampant mass incarceration numbers, you know, the amount of money. I mean, here in California, you know, David, it's you know what, in my lifetime, I think we've built one university, UC Merced, and we've added like 15 more jails. You know, it's just, it's it's stunning how we prioritize 
um, you know, our, our budget, you know, it's always on prosecution and enforcement. It's never on public defense. Um, and, and I just started seeing, I was like, okay, there's more immediate dangerous harm on the criminal justice side where we've been, you know, we've, we're very good at what we do legislatively and from a policy basis, like, can we go take that expertise and move it into the criminal justice world and, and help these folks? Cause that's, you know, that's, I, you know, bodies are dropping for, for lack of a better way to say it, you know, people were getting killed. Um, you know, I started paying attention to those, you know, police killing trackers. I think, you know, for like the last five years, we've averaged like three per day. Um, where, where somewhere a law enforcement agent in the country is killing people. And, you know, you see, you know, your Laquan McDonald's and, and you know, uh, just, you know, Tamir Rice and just all these horrible stories over these last few years where these, these, these fatalities are occurring. And so it just became a little bit of a strategy, but also just like, hey, there's way more harm happening over here faster uh, than the surveillance side. Um, and also just, we had kind of gotten pretty entrenched in California. We have a lot of good uh, surveillance vetting frameworks in place now. We've got some good laws at the state level. We're even, you know, got a lot better consumer privacy protection. So it's it's by no means, no means fixed, <laughs> um, but we're way better now on the privacy side in California than we used to be. And we're still horrible on the criminal justice side. And so we just wanted to help folks and, and move into that space a bit more. And I don't think a lot of people realize, like you were mentioning COINTELPRO. I mean, that stuff was real. Like, like the FBI was literally infiltrating into justice groups. And, um, you know, they were doing this stuff real this wasn't somebody's paranoia yeah you know it's everybody you start talking about this stuff and like oh you're a conspiracy theorist you got a tin hat on it's like well here's the fbi's own documents you read it and you tell me you know and and especially here in oakland it was really heightened um you know you read the documents about them infiltrating the panthers the panthers did not implode on their own it was the weight of the federal government focused on them, targeting them from the inside and with misinformation and creating these rivalries and factions that split them apart. Like that's, you know, divide and conquer is one of the oldest strategies around. And that's what they did. We've got, we started, um, you know, once people started knowing who I was, um, larger groups, ACLU, Brennan Center, they started sending me documents about the surveillance they had discovered on Occupy Oakland, the FBI, the marshals, the ATF, where DHS was out here surveilling the, the big encampment in front of City Hall. They were terrified. Uh, the Port of Oakland, the Longshoremen's Union have been very active. You know, they've 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 blockaded certain things uh, for political reasons. They've they've just shut down with general strikes. You know, for, uh, to advocate for better wages, and and the police state hates that. Our police have actively fired on our longshoremen. Uh, Two thousand three was a massive massive uh, scandal. There were fatalities. You know, millions and millions of dollars in dollars in legal liability out the door, like we always do in Oakland. Um, so it, it's really personal and heightened in Oakland because we have such a, uh, an active activist community and we're, you know, one of the few places that, you know, we fight back and we advocate for the civil rights and the human rights of, of all people. Uh, and, and the police state doesn't like that, you know, so, so they're very focused in Oakland on, on targeting people. 
Um, and, it, and, it, and it hurts big time. You know, you might not realize it in the moment, but it's like, hmm, I wonder why that move, movement eventually failed or, you know, why did they lose steam or what happened? It's like, well, you find out 20 years later in your COINTEL documents, like there was a campaign to destroy those movements. Um, and, and that has, you know, massive societal implications. Yeah. Um, have you paid attention to the debate in San Francisco over the use of the security cameras? Yeah, you know, that's this is the big wrinkle I'm facing all across the country in our work. Um, and it's often more when I've got my privacy commissioner hat on rather than maybe secure justice. But this blurring of public and private partnerships, uh, I think it's partly in response to the success of all our surveillance ordinances. San Francisco has one just like the Oakland model. Um, and because, you know, these guardrails are put in place that have uh, limited the police department's ability, you know, to commit harmful mass surveillance. They're like, okay, we'll just go privatize it. You know, you can't regulate them the way you're regulating us and we'll just go use their footage. Um, and you also, at the same time, create this media campaign of unreasonable fear and that we're all dying of murder every two minutes and, you know, San Francisco's lawless anarchy. And so, of course, you, you've, you've, uh, what did Noam Chomsky call it? You know, manufactured consent, right? Oh, Oh, we, we want to cooperate with the police. We want to turn over all our video footage. You know, we don't need warrants for anything. And well, now we just created this privately funded mass surveillance network all across the city. Um, and, you know, you can make all the good talking points up front to justify it. It's like, you know, San Francisco has a tenderloin and there was a smash and grab problem and da, da, da. Like you can say all those things up front. And then of course, we always look at it after the fact. It's like, well, what'd you really use it for? And it's like, well, to monitor the George Floyd protests, right? And that's what we kept saying in Oakland when we had this big fight over the Domain Awareness Center. We had a predecessor, it wasn't as robust, but uh, our emergency operations center also had some surveillance network. And we finally got the real data. It had been used uh, in, in this like 10 year period that it was audited. It had been used 19 times. Once, and you might remember when the maze melted down, that truck caught on fire and the maze uh, melted. And of course that's, you know, a, a California wide catastrophe because the Bay Area is, is so critical and the port is so critical. So that was used once and you go, okay, that's legitimate. The other 18 were all for protests every single other use was for first amendment protected activity and so you know that's what we keep trying to tell people is like you can say all your nice friendly things up front but we know what you're going to actually do with this in practice and it's to monitor protest activity and that's what's happened in san francisco with george floyd you know i i worked on some after action reports uh, in Los Angeles, you know, they had the similar uh, problem, uh, you know, in, in response to the George Floyd protests where they just threw an army of surveillance technology at people and they're tracking you by your license plates, who's at what protest. Um, you could see a heightened concern now in this post Roe v. Wade world. Uh, we've already got consumer data brokers that we're watching that are actively selling data. They're marketing it for people who have been geolocated close to abortion uh, clinics who have done keyword searches, you know, internet queries for abortion or, or alternatives, you know, pills, contraceptives, et cetera, um, period tracking apps. All that data is now being going, is now being sold 
to law enforcement agencies in, in at least the seven states where um, you know it's, it's uh, you know potentially a, a murder charge, uh, a felony, uh, if you if you if you um, get this procedure done, and, and so we're we're trying to communicate that to people's like there's real real problems here that you think your you know benign security camera network uh, isn't going to lead to these results, and we're telling you it absolutely is already occurring. And you need to start paying attention um, and, and look, you know, people are like, oh, we can have public safety or privacy. No, it's not a binary choice. We can do both. But you've got to have a, appropriate policies and guardrails in place and then hold folks accountable for, for the misconduct, which, you know, as you know, accountability always seems to be the missing component uh, in the American justice system. Well, and, you know, as somebody who's who's poured over a lot of these surveillance videos over time, I mean, the utility of them for uh, public safety purposes is pretty limited. Um, you know, you're talking about people in the dark, walking around with ski masks and hats and, and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> You're just not going to be able to identify them. It's just like, you know, the, the news shows that show, hey, uh, this guy walking away, uh, th we think this was the suspect. Well, right. oh, yeah, I, I can tell who that is by how they walked, right? right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, you know, partly because of the political climate we've been, we've been in, we've 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 changed our talking points. You know the privacy angle; it's just not getting traction right now because people believe the media narrative, um, and so we've started tackling it on efficacy. You know, there's three. There's only three um, white, but but they were very well done, peer reviewed, PhD peer reviewed white papers in the country that looked at license plate readers from a statistical viewpoint analysis. All three said, as crime-fighting tools, they are statistically zeros. They're invisible. That doesn't mean there aren't one-offs here and there, but like the way they are used at the volume to to commit mass surveillance, it is it's ineffective. A human is just as effective standing out there on a corner. It's you know it's essentially a coin flip. Um, Shot spotter has never reduced gun violence in any jurisdiction in the country. Cameras and these have been studied for at least the last 30 years, including the big CCTV networks in like London and elsewhere, cameras have never had a deterrent effect anywhere. They might displace crime. It moves around the corner when you put your camera, but it doesn't on net reduce it. And so we keep trying to tell people, it's like, look, America has tried to enforce our way out of crime for hundreds of years. If it's not working, why would we keep doing the same thing? You know, that's that's what was really frustrating, David, about the, the camera policy in San Francisco. It's been studied to death specifically in San Francisco. UC Berkeley uh, studied the tenderloin specifically in the camera networks, uh, open air drug raids. It's like these things do not work. Statistically, they do not work. And what we do know is going to happen is one, a huge financial outpouring uh, of our resources, right? We throw money at it. And number two, civil liberties harm. We seem to just keep magically arresting the black guy over and over and over. And that's who's in our jails. So we know these things. And yet, you know, Americans, it's just like we, we pretend like no matter that something happened 100 times in a row, it's like we're going to suddenly change the law of averages and, and be the exception. And, and obviously, it's, it's not work. That It's not working. And, and that's what's, I think, the scariest thing, and, and probably I'm sure to you too, in, in San Francisco, is like 
you know, Mayor Breed and others, DA Jenkins now after the recall of Chesa, like reigniting the war on drugs. It's like you have 60 years of data, you know, it doesn't work. And this is all you and this is what you're going to go tell people. But if it gets you reelected, that's why they're saying it. Boggles my mind. Yeah. Right. Um, honestly, you know, this last year has just been like, hey, uh, we tried this. It doesn't work. Yeah. What are we doing? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the board gave her over 150 million to get housing. She didn't buy housing. And but but and she's not getting people off the streets. And but she's saying the only solution is more policing. It's like you were given the actual resource. Like San Francisco is one of the few places that has money. They had the resources. They said, go buy housing. This will give the people the stability they need to get off the streets, to get any substance or mental health that they need, you know, to just to get back on their feet. That's what they need. Utah has shown that it's worked. Salt Lake City, right? Portland, San Antonio, like uh, everywhere in Europe, the Denmark model, all these places have shown it works. And we even here in, in, you know, capitalist America, we've shown it's worked. Salt Lake City is a wonderful model I've been studying. And you know what they did? They just gave everyone a house, <laughs> you know, but, but here, here in San Francisco, where, you know, we pretend we're all, you know, the smartest people in the room and, and tech's going to solve everything. And, and we're all data driven until we're not uh we suddenly think the war on drugs is the only solution and i just i can't believe that people this educated are, are falling for it yeah i just uh on this show a few weeks ago had one of the public defenders on from san francisco she goes we know what works permanent supportive housing yep, yep. you know and i and i would add you know couple it with uh uh, substance treatment and uh, some mental health uh, funding and some job training and you're in good shape. Yep, exactly. They need, they, science here. Yeah, they need the wraparound services and, and other folks, you know, it's just like universal healthcare, right? All the other developed countries in the world have shown it works. They've made it work. Some of them have made it work for decades and decades and decades. It's financially possible. It's pragmatic. And yet America says it can't work. And it's, it's you know, we just we've just got that mental block or our culture just hasn't, hasn't evolved in these areas where we need it to. So um, in terms of this coming year, what are you guys looking at? We're looking, um, we haven't finalized, uh, you know, officially voted, our board hasn't voted yet on our legislative packet, but we're looking at a prosecutor misconduct bill, which, you know, you're probably aware of just talking to Bill or Jeffrey. Um, some other barriers to to reentry, um, uh, you know, sentencing enhancements, uh, some punishments. Also, like we've, uh, there's a really a, a unique one where, or I guess it's not all that unique. It, it's it was a bit obscure, um, but uh, an impacted individual brought us uh, his story. Um, he had his uh, driving rights permanently taken away because of a past conviction and it had nothing to do with his vehicle whatsoever and he's out in the boondocks and he's like you know if I can even get an uber to come out here you know it's 30 dollars each way and as you know the cost is just so prohibitive he's like I'm basically riding a bike you know or I don't have reliable public transit and so we're, we're looking at some of those uh, barriers to re-entry um, at the local level it's kind of been mostly trying to just play defense you know, not lose these surveillance ordinances. Um, Oakland was the first municipality to ban all biometric surveillance and predictive analytics. We were three days ahead of New Orleans. 
And I, you know, I don't know if you saw, but New Orleans actually repealed their bans. Uh, just overwhelming, you know, uh, media hysteria and, 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 you know, police pressure. And they, they took away those protections. And so that's what we're worried about as we see San Francisco start to falter. And, and even the folk, you know, everybody's, it was, oh, we're going to defund, defund, defund. No one, you know, in this so-called radical progressive Bay Area, no one took a penny from any of their police departments. And some of them gave the police way, way more money. Um, and so we're trying to work on some of that. Um, because uh, a couple of the cities are going to be going into their budget cycles next year. So we want to pre be prepared to try to divert, you know, more funds towards, you know, like civilianization and traffic enforcement or mental health programs like macro, uh, like Oakland and Berkeley are doing now. Um, we've got a number of lawsuits happening uh, where we are defending the surveillance models, um, suing both. Uh, we've got multiple suits against Berkeley right now. We've got a big one uh, against the city of Oakland, and, and we've got a, a, an even bigger, juicier one uh, that a number of your public defender friends are going to be very involved in that we're going to be filing probably in a month. Um, so we're, we're keeping busy. You know, we're, we're still, I'd probably say we're in 10 states right now across the country where folks are either trying to do a privacy commission um, or maybe just figure out ways to, to, you know, slow down or mitigate the harms of surveillance networks uh, in their respective jurisdictions. Um, what are your thoughts on the election from this week? Uh, pleasantly, gratefully, and thankfully surprised it wasn't worse. Um, I really did expect the worst. And I think, and obviously I'm not the originator of this thought, like, you know, the Roe v. Wade thing might have been the Republicans' mistake. You know, they should have waited till after, you know, they should have asked the Supreme Court to, to stall and do it after the midterms, because I think that reignited just enough people on the left. Um, I saw all my, almost all my allies uh, either retain their seats or move up or get reelected uh, here in the Bay Area. So I was really thankful. We're gonna probably have the most progressive Oakland City Council in history uh, in January, which I'm really excited about, but also stunning. Cause I, I really hold Oakland up. Like, you know, we should be sort of the, the the resistance, you know, the bastion of, 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 of defending, you know, progressive ideals. Our voter turnout, it was something like 15% or less. I cannot believe how bad it was, especially when there were so many races locally, so many measures locally at issue. Um, I, I, like, that is frightening to me. Um, Georgia is still scary to me. You know, there's there was, you know, reports of the armed militias, you know, intimidating people at voting booths, you know, voting, voting disenfranchisement is a big area we might start focusing on as well. Um, but I, you know, like, like, you know, Pennsylvania and some of these other places, I mean, that was great. That was amazing to watch, uh, you know, these new progressive, uh, you know, candidates come in. There's a lot of, of women of color, people of color, young people, uh, you know, that what that one congressman now is like, I think 30 years old, 28 years old, you know, the first Gen Z guy like ever elect. I mean, so there, there was a lot of good news. You know, we didn't lose as badly as we thought. Um, 
I'm, I was really disappointed in this last legislative cycle in California, the number of good bills, necessary bills that were killed by the moderate Democrats was really frustrating. Um, I'm hoping that that was because it was an election year and we'll finally stand by our values this next season. You know, the governor's safe, the attorney general's safe, and, and a number of the other folks are safe now. So I'm, I'm hoping we finally push the envelope again, because uh, it, it was really frustrating. There's some really good legislation that I objectively do not think was that controversial, and it still just went down in flames. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping we get a better state legislative season this year. What do you think is going to happen in the Alameda DA's race? I love Pam, and unfortunately, just the numbers are, I think the gap's a little too big. I think partly, you know, the, the, the south and the east parts of Alameda County are really conservative. And if Oakland's turnout really is as bad as they're saying, like 15% or less, that's what hurt her, is that enough people in Oakland didn't show up. You know, her base is more, you know, Oakland, Alameda City, Berkeley, San Leandro, the, the eastern sort of urban core. Um, you know, we're just, we're, we're just more, you know, progressive, more blue than the, the other part of the county. Like Alameda County is purple. It's ultra conservative in some areas. You know, we've had one of the worst sheriffs in, in California history, Sheriff Ahern, uh, and he got reelected, you know, easily until this last election cycle when he finally, finally lost just so many scandals in the federal receivership of, of the Santa Rita jail. But he won easily just by carrying those conservative parts of the county. You know, Oakland could never run a candidate and could never stop him. And unfortunately, that's what's been happening with the district attorney race probably as well. Well, thanks for checking in. Um, sounds like you guys have your work cut out for you in the next year. Yep, I, I, I appreciate chatting with you. Uh, I'm sure we're going to be talking and collaborating a lot in the future. You know, you guys, um, you know, I'm a super nerd. You know, I need to know everything about everything. And I just, I love having the information that you guys keep providing and putting in your in your newsletters and, and just getting that stuff out there. Um, you guys are very, very good at finding the impacted folks and highlighting those stories. And that's what makes, you know, our policy work work <laughs> you know it's you know you don't need a policy fix if there's no injury you know if there's no impact the person what are we sitting here for just you know talking in an academic context but when we've been able to have those folks and bring them to the legislative meetings and really put a, a why you know on on the bill on the need for the bill uh it's been wonderful and, and you guys are doing really great work at that so i i wish you all the all the best and success and you know I hope your audience is is uh, acknowledging and responding favorably to you know. I'm sure you're doing some some year end fundraising appeals, and you know I I hope you guys are able to uh, to just keep keep fighting on because we need it. Well, thanks. That's Brian Hoffer from Secure Justice. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.